Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The internet has quickly gone from being hailed as the most democratizing force in world history to being decried as a tool which nefarious, authoritarian, and ruthlessly mercantile forces use to exploit and manipulate the dumb masses. Maybe there's some truth to both. And perhaps something else entirely different is going on as well. My guest today is Adrian Chen, a staff writer at The New Yorker. He has a recent piece in that magazine where he digs into the debate over the internet free-for-all and fake news, comparing it to concerns that were expressed about the new medium of radio in the first half of the 20th century. Adrian Chen, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. You wrote this recent story just out in The New Yorker looking at the debate over whether the internet is amazing or horrible and comparing it to the reaction to the new medium of radio in the first half of the 20th century. Why did you decide to write this piece? Well, I think in the in the wake of the election and, and in the later days of the campaign, the issue of fake news just seemed to kind of blow up out of nowhere. And, you know, you had all these studies that BuzzFeed put out, um, these, you know, research papers talking about this plague of fake news, these Macedonian teenagers cranking out all this stuff. And it just seemed so bizarre and kind of like topsy-turny um, and and scary that I, I was just kind of like trying to grasp my head around what was going on. And at the same time, I was reading uh, this book by Fred Turner called The Democratic Surround, where there's a, a it's about how um, people began to think of media as a kind of threat and an authoritarian engine. And um, this all came about during the 30s and 40s. And one of the anecdotes he uses to kind of illustrate how people were thinking about radio at the time was um, the panic around the War of the Worlds broadcast uh, uh, that Orson, Orson Welles put out. And it just struck me that, you know, this was a, a fake news episode where um, that pretended the world was being invaded by Martians. And according to him, this kind of tapped into this really new fear of propaganda and and the idea that people could use the radio to spread fear and mass delusion. And that just kind of struck me as something very similar that was going on um, in the wake of the election. And so I just started reading more and more about it. And the more I read about this time period around mass media, um, there were a lot of parallels to what was going on here. And I just kind of really thought it would be interesting to try to ground it in history and, and just show what um, what we're dealing with now isn't totally new. At the time, um, you opened the piece talking about the world, War of the Worlds broadcast. Um, there was this idea that there was a mass freakout over it, and that's how it's popularly remembered. I think until I read your piece, that's how I remembered it. Um, but there's an argument that that didn't really happen, right? Right. This is the, the War of the Worlds panic you know, in legend, um, it caused this huge hysteria. People, you know, committed suicide because they thought the end was near. People had heart attacks. Um, you know, there was this idea that people ran were rampaging in the streets, just thinking that the the end was here. And but but the the myth has become this kind of favorite target of media researchers to kind of examine, you know, what was the reality of of what was going on, and. More and more people have found that the media hyped up this episode. Um, you know, there wasn't these mass riots in the street. There was definitely some, uh, you know, panic, but they were small, isolated pockets. Um, it might have gotten amplified, according to this one book I read, because a lot of people were calling into newspapers to say, you know, is this true or not? And they took this as a sign of kind of a, you know, mass panic that was going on when really it was, you know, people trying to be kind of responsible 
um, and understand what was going on. But the newspapers took it and ran with it. And uh, this was in the context of this struggle between uh, newspapers and the new medium of radio, which in the lead up to World War II was becoming the kind of dominant source of breaking news. And, you know, newspapers were not happy about this. They really wanted a piece of the pie. And, you know, this became a object lesson in, you know, how the new medium of radio really needed to shape up. Um, and of course, it was the newspapers, the responsible journalists who could kind of show them how to how to not scare people and not propagate lies like this. Peddling this idea that radio um, was this sort of irresponsible free-for-all that took advantage of the ignorant populace, served newspapers' economic interests, and it also, though, fit into this, this broader worry that radio, unlike prior media, um, was had this particular danger that it was more likely to be employed for mass manipulation by by fascist demagogues why why was there that worry in particular well one of the big things was that radio kind of penetrated the boundary between public and private in this way that was uh very exciting to a lot of people and also very worrying because it basically meant that people could now hear kind of public addresses uh, public voices in the privacy of their own home and so on the one hand, you had people like John Dewey, um, you know, a bunch of progressive educators who really saw this as a way to kind of bring the outside world, um, bring classical music, bring these kind of high-minded ideals into the living rooms of people who might have only been plugged into their local community. And it would become this kind of democratizing, you know, enlightening force. And then other people saw this as a kind of... Um, they, they saw this as a threat because people would be listening to this without any kind of, you know, rooting to the public. You weren't in a public square. You were just alone um, in your living room being addressed directly by this kind of, you know, soothing voice. And this was also tied into the rise of advertising and commercial broadcasting, where all of a sudden there was this boom in marketing and persuasive techniques and kind of the whole field of marketing was born on the back of all of this, you know, new research um, that supposedly showed just how persuasive people could be, um, you know, and, and so it became this idea that it was just this tool of uh, kind of brainwashing, basically. Well, that's precisely my concern about podcasts in general and, and this podcast in particular. Uh, right. But, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for the, the freak out over, yeah, your podcast is being, um, you know, leftist propaganda, which obviously it is, but. Uh, <laughs> and just I, I'm, I'm practicing the my mind control uh, uh, techniques with through my via my dulcet uh, tones. Um, so fast forwarding to the the Internet. Um, commentators used to be really excited about it, but they've soured in recent years. What did people initially think that the internet would be? And what do critics now say is wrong with it? Yeah, I think people really thought the internet would be this kind of vast public square where anybody could have a voice, where all information was accessible to anybody that would basically break out um, the the stranglehold of information uh, from the big old BD companies, from the corporate media that was kind of the result of how radio developed, actually. Um, and I think one of the key ideas was that it would basically make the distinction between commercial interests and the public interest obsolete because a lot of these companies were these platforms that existed only to empower users. And so, you know, it was in the public's interest, basically, to let these platforms get super powerful, get super big uh, and sophisticated, because it was, in the end, empowering us. And we were the ones who would benefit, even if they were making money, um, 
it was giving us a voice. It was letting protesters, you know, be heard. Um, and so, so yeah, it was just this kind of idea that that in this era of abundance, we could have everything, basically. And how did that start to shift to a, a dimmer view of what was going on online? Well, it's interesting in reading up on kind of the history of this utopian idea, there there really has been this kind of undercurrent of skepticism throughout um, the development of kind of the modern web. And I think it flares up every once in a while. I read this really interesting article by the philosopher Helen Nissenbaum called The Politics of Search, which came out in kind of the early 2000s, I think. And basically, she argues that even though it seems like search is just this magical reflection of our, you know, personal interests and desires, we type in something and it and it pops up, it's really shaped by these kind of hidden commercial logics. So for example, the position of a website on search is dependent on how many links it has from other websites. And this kind of both in further entrenches more powerful websites leading to a kind of winner take all dynamic and also has led to this kind of huge industry of search engine optimization where people pay millions of dollars to make sure that their Google result is high by gaming the system. And so that this thing that seemed like just this magical way to get what we want was really shaped by by these dynamics that weren't that much different than other uh, older mediums and that we had to pay attention to how they were designed um, and that when it was designed purely by um, financially motivated people, it would lead more toward a kind of you know winner-take-all, further entrenchment of these commercial interests, basically old dynamics in a new form. And so she wanted us to kind of advocate for more democratic, less commercial ways of basically designing all these systems. And you had another wave of this concern, I think, with um, the filter bubble that was this big book in the mid-2000s that argued the personalization of social media was kind of trapping us into these echo chambers, um, basically guided by the commercial imperative to keep us hooked on to the social medias as much as possible. Um, We were being shut out of opposing viewpoints, being more hyper-polarized. And so you had this growing concern, I think, that the new economy of social media was structured in ways that was more about kind of appealing to our emotions and our hidden desires and our irrational side rather than this utopian forum that people originally wanted. And I think the more I read about it, the more I was struck by both during the radio age and the social media age, this was really tied up in concerns around advertising and the persuasive power of advertising, whether it was jingles and tones used by people who were hawking soap over the radio or these algorithms and um, SEO tactics, clickbait headlines that were being used in the social media age. But it seems like even through with all that criticism coming from some scholars and and activists and writers, that the more optimistic, even utopian view really prevailed through the the Arab Spring. And I remember all of the coverage of the green um, protest movement in in Iran and all of this sort of breathless reporting about how the how Twitter had made it possible. But that really starts to to change with the rise of of ISIS, as you note, using social media for recruitment and propaganda purposes. And then the real coup de grace was, I think, fake news and the DNC hacks, which led sort of mainstream liberal commentators to um, really decidedly, decisively come down on the internet as dangerously unregulated and and I think as you write too democratic. Right. It's almost like attitudes about social media really track with attitudes around kind of democracy and what is the right amount of democracy are we seeing 
seeing too much? Are we seeing not enough? Um, kind of where are these democratic uprisings happening, right? Is it happening in these countries that we think are authoritarian that need to be shaken up um, with social media? Or is it being happened in a country like ours where it is seen as democratic, but it's being shaken up by somebody who, who appears to be more authoritarian? And I think that that was always a tension. I mean, in in the debates around social media where you had somebody like Hillary Clinton who was actually one of the biggest, I think, and most, uh, she was like the most outspoken proponent of this idea of internet freedom. She made it a kind of staple of the State Department when she was there that basically one of the main goals of kind of US foreign policy would be to ensure the free flow of information in these countries. and the biggest threat to democracy in terms of the internet was censorship, was restricting the flow. And it kind of set up this dynamic between open and closed. And we had, you know, societies like China where the internet was closed versus societies like us where it was open. And open was good, closed was bad. I think that now you're seeing a kind of scrambling of that logic where people are realizing it's not as clear cut as open or closed. It's this negotiation and increasingly these debates around, you know, how information is going to flow, what logic it's going to be um, going by, who owns it, right? It's, it's centered on these massive platforms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, um, and people are realizing that it's not just that they are opening up something or letting information flow. It's that they actually structure how everything goes over their networks. I think you just made a really important point, which was that the debate over the internet really tracks debates over politics more more generally. And I wonder if it seems like more specifically that the criticism and anxiety over the internet is really a proxy for anxiety over populism right now, whether we're talking, um, and it's the sort of generalized elite fear over populism that often fails to differentiate between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Do you think the conversation is really about the internet or do you think the internet is, is sort of a useful way for people to talk about politics more generally? I think that it's definitely a metaphor about yeah what's going on in our political system. I think one thing that kind of irked me and made me really want to dig into the issue more was this idea of kind of hyper democracy in a post-truth world, right? Where this was kind of the most extreme version of the argument, but I saw it made a lot where basically they were saying Trump and, and Trumpism and this populist surge in the US was a direct result of social media kind of fracturing the, the media landscape of letting people just burrow into their echo chambers. Um, and suddenly we had no agreement on what was important in the world, right? And so th this was both, I think, a metaphor, but also an explanation for why we're at the situation. And, and one thing that I realized very quickly just reading back is that we never had agreement to the extent that, that people thought we did. Um, and that when we did in the kind of mid century, when um, there was this, uh, what's sometimes referred to as the high modernist period in journalism, where basically people were just accepting whatever officials said as truth and reporting that. And that was the truth. People generally believed that um, it wasn't necessarily the best uh, model for, for uh, journalism in a democracy. So I thought that um, that was kind of concerning that this narrative of hyper-democratization was taking hold when it was clearly not rooted in history and also kind of presented a pretty overly rosy view of the, the history of journalism and media. What do you think the correct approach is then? Because as you just mentioned, it's obviously wrong to say that the 
what's new about the internet is that it brings bad information to people who then believe that bad information because that's been true for a long time with prior um, forms of media. But on the other hand, one still wants to, I think, recognize what are the new features about a new media technology. So how how do you draw that line? What do you think is 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 new about the internet and what do you think is actually just more of what we've had before with radio, newspaper, television, but just presented in a new format? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because on the one hand, you you see a lot of things that are similar and echoes in history, but you don't want to just say like, oh, well, nothing new under the sun. What's what's the point, right? You also don't want to get into a debate around just this abstract internet, you know, social media concept where, oh, is it good for democracy? Is it bad for democracy? Because when we're talking about social media or the internet, we aren't just talking about this kind of general principle. It's something that that has very definite structure. It changes all the time. Um, and so what I have always been trying to do is just really dig into the specifics of how does it work? Who owns these platforms? Um, and I think that you're seeing a real shift from these abstract ideas of does, does democracy benefit or um, does it get harmed by the internet, quote unquote, to now being like, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about the internet? We're talking about these giant platforms that basically are the internet for most people. Um, and we really need to focus on how does the concentration of that power into the hands of these people affect um, our media and affect what kinds of voices are heard or not. So I think that you really need to just focus on the, the kind of policies the kind of structure of ownership over the internet right now and get rid of these abstract ideas of like, is the internet good or bad for democracy? Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you, I guess, sort of finish up on in your piece, which is sort of that the debate over fake news and whether the internet has good information that's making people freer or bad information that's making them stupider and more manipulated that whole sort of debate really obscures this more basic problem, which has to do with the oligopoly power over information distribution wielded most powerfully by Facebook, but over other platforms that have come to dominate growing swaths of the Internet. Right. I think I think one thing that I, I was trying to bring out in the piece and one thing that I, I realized just reading and, and looking into this is that even though fake news has been portrayed as this technical problem, it really has fallen into a kind of technical jargon, like the intersection of media and technology. There are a lot of studies out there. There are a lot of these ideas for like different kind of meta labels that you could put on news to, to make it seem more trustworthy. There are these fact checking programs now that are aiming to kind of automatically sift through as much information as possible. And I think that once you start looking at what is actually fake news, what are people so concerned about, it is not so clear cut what is fake or not. It might be a twisted fact. You know, it might be something that is not 100% true, but, you know, in one way it might be. And it's really just kind of, I think, the... the it, what what you're seeing now is basically like people's political lives and and political movements now happen pretty much solely on social media and it's not something when you are trying to um, promote a candidate or promote a political ideology it doesn't fall into real or fake it's very messy it's conversational it's a debate and so I think the issue is not so much technical as it is political. And it's something that we have to talk about, you know, what kinds of movements are we allowing on these platforms? What kinds of um, people do we want to be using this? What is the ultimate, you know, society we're trying to create from these platforms 
coming about instead of saying, oh, we need a certain amount of real versus fake content or else, you know, we're going to be basically destroying democracy because everyone's going to turn into like fake news zombies. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Larry Website, The Dig's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for The Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. The elites who are sort of worried about all of this are attracted to technocratic fixes to what they see as a technological problem, among them, namely, I guess, content filtering algorithms. You write about Facebook's experience attempting to curate news and the resulting political fallout. Can you lay out what happened? Sure. This was a really interesting episode that happened during the campaign that I found really important, and I think it didn't get as much attention in the mainstream press because it was such a huge story in the right-wing press, and I think the tendency is you know, to just kind of write it off because it was, you know, this huge Breitbart story. But basically, um, in the fall of last year, Gizmodo published an anonymous Facebook employee's uh, kind of whistleblowing that he claimed Facebook employees were routinely censoring conservative news outlets from this feature called the Trending News Bar. And he said that basically they were told to downvote these, you know, popular, very popular um, right wing blogs. And they were kind of hushing it up under the name of uh, quality. You know, they weren't they weren't specifically saying that they were downvoting this, but they were saying, oh, you know, they're not high quality. And so this became a huge story in the right wing blogosphere. Breitbart made a huge crusade out of it. They started basically identifying all these Facebook employees who were working on the team. And they all had, you know, they were all like recent NYU grads who were super progressive and, you know, didn't think gender was real and stuff. And so <laughs> they were exactly who you would expect them to be. <laughs> right, right. They were young, you know, media people. And so this proved to them that there was this huge conspiracy to censor them. There was a giant outcry, and actually Mark Zuckerberg invited a bunch of conservatives to Facebook to kind of state their fears and then fired all of the people who worked for the the news team. And I guess I just thought that that was like really a sign of how powerful the right-wing media is in shaping the the platforms today and how this struggle over what what's going to be the shape of these platforms is it going to favor basically you know reactionaries or um a more kind of uh conscious progressive ideology is being is is already happening and i think a lot of people on the left and a lot of progressives are kind of stuck in this idea of like, oh, we, we can fix this with, you know, algorithms or better, better data or, you know, bursting out of our filter bubbles when conservatives have already realized that this is the new gatekeeper that they need to be attacking just as they were the FCC, you know, um, in the time of the fairness doctrine, or just as they have been attacking the mainstream press for half a, half a decade, or I'm sorry, half a century, they're now retooling their firepower on social media. And it's been pretty effective because they basically got exactly what they wanted out of Facebook in that sense. Yeah, it really, um, what Facebook did really played into this argument of liberal media bias that has become this key feature of conservative grievance culture. Um, tell me a little bit about how that's worked over the years and um, its early moments with, with the fairness doctrine in radio. 
the idea of literal media bias is very common now. I mean, everybody kind of hears it and rolls their eyes and, and it's become this cliche almost of right-wing media. And I think there's a tendency to look at that as kind of a Fox News um, innovation, right? That that they use that as a kind of branding technique and just a kind of super cynical way to to bolster their audience and to discredit the mainstream media that they see as their opponents. But it actually started um, a long time ago at basically around the same time as the War of the Worlds panic, as this fear of propaganda was was spreading. The modern conservative movement came out of the kind of America first movement during World War One, and it was specifically these kind of elite media people uh, who were shut out of, you know, the New York Times, um, the Time magazine, large New York media establishments because of their isolationist views. And they felt that the press was blacking out their views under the guise of kind of objectivity, of truth. And they realized that the way to advance their alternative viewpoints was to create this alternative media system. And from the beginning, the conservative movement was a kind of media movement. Um, and uh, this historian, Nicole Hemmer, writes about the development of the conservative movement as a reaction to their views and their beliefs not being portrayed in the mainstream media. And it, it started as this, you know, kind of very practical way to get out their message. And through the 1950s, hardened into this more conspiratorial, crusading mentality and this idea that it's not that just that they were being shut out, but that there was a kind of active, tyrannical campaign of repression against conservative thought. And this basically really peaked in the 50s when there was this surge in conservative radio right at the time uh, where the mid-century liberal consensus was the hardest and where the SEC was the most hard-nosed about um, trying to enforce a sort of fair, objective, um, rational debate over the airwaves. And this was all done under the Fairness Doctrine, which guaranteed the right to reply of um, somebody who was attacked by a broadcaster. You know, they, they wanted to give the other side a fair hearing. And because conservatives were kind of very ostentatiously attacking um, kind of the mainstream beliefs, they were also very racist and very reactionary. They were kind of by definition controversial. And so they would constantly fall afoul of the fairness doctrine and they were also targeted specifically by liberal activists, by liberal administrations who used the, the fairness doctrine to try to muzzle them, as uh, Nicole Hemmer put it. And so, yeah, th this created this like real sense among them that wasn't unwarranted that the FCC and these institutions were kind of a, a tool of the liberal elite to censor them. Because and, they sort of were. <laughs> yeah, they, they were. Um, but I, I think that one thing that's important to note is that that didn't prevent them from using the exact same methods when Nixon was in power and when the FCC basically became even more brazenly a tool of Nixon to censor critics, to uh, shut down liberal voices. And it's almost like because they were so clear-headed about, you know, uh, well, we don't care about objectivity or the truth. We, we're just going to use this as a political weapon. It was this kind of neutral arbiter. It was almost more effective for them than it was for the progressives and the liberals who, who instituted these policies in the first place. And so I think that, that that kind of made me think about fake news and this idea of echo chambers and a post-truth post society as being the kind of product of you know, social media or, or some kind of new fracturing. But I think at most it would have accelerated something that has been really 
firmly entrenched and really kind of worked over by conservatives for many decades. And I, the more I started reading these kind of hyper-partisan Facebook pages, right, that were supposedly this new, crazy, fabricated um, lie world, a lot of it came right from, you know, Rush Limbaugh or Alex Jones or these um, Mark Levin, these kind of juggernauts of conservative media. And they would just kind of slap a headline on it that was super clickbaity and fake, right? But it was not just that they were kind of wholesale making things up. They were kind of saying, oh, you know, Mark Levin reveals, you know, Hillary Clinton's body double or something. Um, when really he made some kind of strange remark that could be vaguely interpreted as saying that Hillary Clinton had died. And, and so, so yeah, it was this kind of like uh, entertaining spectacle of conservative radio that, that has been around forever, um, now being transplanted to social media using the kind of vernacular of social media that we were seeing and not just a kind of crazy dislodgement from the truth. Yeah, you you uh, noted that on Fox News after the election, Trump boasted, I wouldn't be here without Twitter. But isn't that sort of overselling Twitter and underselling Fox News? Definitely. And it's kind of interesting that Trump himself has claimed social media as his own thing. And I think you see this with a lot of political campaigns in general now, using social media to portray the idea that like they have this huge grassroots movement that's just coming out of nowhere that is um you know this revolutionary populist movement and it there is a certain amount of astroturfing going on i think all the time now and you see it most explicitly with trump where he retweets these bots and these fake accounts and you're never really sure how many of these accounts he's tweeting that say, good job, Donald Trump, aren't just, you know, one of his staffers kind of tweeting <laughs> that at him. I always am like, I bet some of these are, are plants, you know. Um, I want to talk um, about the two things that have been pointed to as the smoking guns for the internet being horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, the DNC email hack and pro-Trump fake news. The the two are often blamed for perverting our electoral process, and I think not without no reason. But it also seems like the impact, the way it's described, can suffer from exaggeration. Um, in the case of both fake news and the email hacks, I've yet to see anyone attempt to demonstrate particularly what effect either of them had on the general elections outcome. How do you appraise their their impact? Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, I saw some Stanford study that came out soon after the election that said they calculated the average voter had seen, you know, 1.4 fake news stories throughout the campaign. <laughs> and And for that to have a decisive impact, you know, it would have had to be more powerful than, you know, the most powerful campaign ad or something. I think that it's very easy to get into these like studies that you you don't know, right? So I yeah I don't I don't know how you can really judge what the effect of of a specific fake news story was, and I think that was one of the things that really bugged me about the the chatter around fake news was it really was taking these stories and this content out of context and and portraying it as this kind of virus that was infecting people's minds, and it was actually kind of going back to this theory of, of media effects known as the hypodermic model, which came out of, in large part, studies around um, the, the War of the Worlds panic, where people saw this overblown panic and they, they basically assumed that media was kind of this extremely powerful, infectious agent that, you know, if people were exposed to it, it would change their opinion. It could force them to do things, um, you know, like an injection, basically. And that has been discredited uh, over many decades of media research. But now you're really seeing a return of this I, this kind of hypodermic thinking, especially when you think about the, the talk around filter bubbles, right, where it's like, 
we're trapped in this bubble and the algorithms are so effective at giving us what we want that we really can't resist it. And we are just like kind of hypnotized by this kind of barrage of information that's hyper-targeted at us. Um, it's this form of media criticism that just infers audience reception. Right. And, and I think people would make the argument that, well, social media is just like way more powerful and effective at, at delivering these messages. Um, and I think that, that maybe that's true. I also think that's maybe kind of Silicon Valley marketing, you know, that's what Facebook would want you to believe because they want people to think that, you know, uh, advertisers, they want advertisers to think that they're super effective by buying these keywords and things. I think what's more interesting to me is, is this idea of political life and political discourse moving on to these platforms and what we're seeing with fake news, with, um, all this stuff is, is this kind of like chatter, you know, we're all kind of media activists now. We're all kind of at that point where the conservative movement began, where we're trying to um, make change and advance our own narratives through social media. And I think the wrong idea would would be to be like, oh, no, this is dangerous. We need to start, you know, rubber stamping accepted beliefs and opinions and truth versus fact because that's not going to work. I think what you're going to see... Wait, factcheck.org won't save us? <laughs> I think most people listening to this podcast would agree that that's not going to happen. Uh, but one thing that I'm kind of actually worried about is that if if Facebook, if Google just becomes this kind of like fact-checked, rationalized um, information landscape, you're going to have this like bifurcation and I think you're already seeing it where you have the kind of like corporate approved, um, you know, advertiser friendly Internet. And then you have the like dark web of crazy shit that's like actually interesting, but also like really bad and scary. And I think that you're just going to find like the the interesting stuff will will come out of this like more unfettered, you know, and truer to the original idea of the internet, which I still believe has a lot of potential to let people have their voice heard, to, you know, bypass centralized media powers, and to just like, unleash a certain kind of creativity that you're not going to get from um, old media. But that's all now going to be just ceded to like trolls and Stormfront. And meanwhile, anybody who kind of cares about democracy has to like be posting on Facebook and having it fact, you know, every every word of theirs fact checked. The various debates that your piece goes over, I think, really gets to an issue that I often struggle with, which is a the basic one of how to approach pop culture. Um. One way to think about it is that people actively make mass culture their own. Another take is that we are dominated by culture industries run by rich elites and they feed information trash into people's brains. It seems to me that both are true on some level. On on the one hand, power over cultural production does matter. Um, and culture controlled by elites often serves those elites' interests. On the other hand, though... People do and think exciting things through mass culture, sometimes radically good things and sometimes really horribly bad things. Where do you come down on that? I guess I I always am excited and really interested by a kind of grassroots, ground-up DIY culture that I think has been a huge presence on the internet continues to be, although to a lesser extent, um, I think you have to find it. You have to seek it out. I think that when we talk about internet culture now, it's almost become commoditized and packaged to the extent that it is a new mass culture. It's a new mass media, just like the radio was um, back then. You know, you have websites, BuzzFeed, Mike, you know, every major news outlet traffics in 
internet culture and in the kind of um, DIY freewheeling spirit that it represents. But but yeah, you have a new kind of meme industry that's risen up, and I think Donald Trump basically as much as a kind of grassroots meme driven troll army helped him, um, his campaign, and he was extremely savvy at kind of cultivating that, at using a top-down approach to give it this techno sheen of like trolls and alt-right, right? He's specifically retweeting these Pepe the Frog memes. And so I think that you saw with the campaign a kind of convergence of the grassroots DIY meme culture with old school political propaganda and media. So I think I think that just because something happens on the internet these days doesn't mean that it represents anything grassroots or particularly revolutionary or innovative. It might just be somebody seeding something that looks like a meme. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listeners' support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. I want to ask about what should be done about the internet, but first, I want to go back to the early years of radio that you write about when the FCC took a much more proactive approach to content regulation Tell me about the idea at the time, the the push to make radio a civic enterprise. At, at the beginning of kind of the commercial radio age, the airwaves were seen as this kind of common good. There was only a limited amount of bandwidth, and there were all these debates about how to kind of divide it up. Uh, would it go to everyday people? Would it be privately controlled corporate system? And eventually the corporate networks won, um, but only under the condition that they would treat this as a public good, that they were basically acting as custodians of the public interest. And this was obviously in tension with their own commercial goals and um, and also the kind of increasing centralization and, and monopoly of certain radio networks like NBC. And so there was always this kind of um, reform movement that wanted to maybe make a BBC of the U.S. or make radio a common carrier or just shake up the um, corporate-controlled networks and make it more directly serve the public interest. And so basically out of that tension and out of that activism, um, the radio networks and the radio reformers and and kind of elite progressives at the time came out with this idea that the historian David Goodman calls the civic paradigm, where basically the commercial networks took it upon themselves to make sure that they were broadcasting material that created a certain kind of listener who was active and tolerant and kind of civically engaged and basically a good citizen of democracy. So so they could prove to these people who were worried that radio was turning people fascist or radio was just handing listeners over to, you know, these devious advertisers. They could point to these forum programs where all sorts of different voices were being heard or classical music um, programming and say, no, look, we're, we're uplifting the people. We are serving the public interest. And basically listening to the radio became thought of as this kind of civic practice where you could listen to these forum programs or to the news and expand your worldview, um, become a more tolerant, you know, active citizen, and basically just become a better American. 
And do you think it worked at all? According to Goodman, he he feels that it really was this kind of, you know, golden age of radio. And people talk about the golden age of radio now, which is it's the same period. They often refer to kind of these radio dramas or, you know, FDR speeches. But he draws attention to these these other programs like um, the town meet. I'm sorry, the the America's town meeting Hall of the Air was a popular, <laughs> popular forum program, but it was really interesting. They they just had people on who would talk about the most important issues. The first, the first episode had like a communist, a fascist, a Democrat, um, <laughs> and like a farmer or something, just talking about is democracy right for the, the United States. And so you did get this like very interesting kind of um, publicly minded programming that once the civic paradigm was gone, where where, uh, you know, radio now is just kind of this totally commercialized uh, enterprise. You don't get that on, you know, Hot 97, um, although uh, the Breakfast Club, maybe the Breakfast Club is though recently not without controversy itself. Right. So, so yeah, I think, I think it did have an effect. And I think, I think one thing that I, I realized from that is just how much more people were kind of, um, engaged in trying to make sure that media served a particular political end, um, and not just, uh, doing whatever it wanted or giving a voice to whatever was the most popular. I think that gets to a real irony in the parallel that you draw there, which is that there was all of this anxiety that radio was going to be a too kind of uncontrolled democratic um, medium that, that led to this sort of brainwashing by, by demagogues. But what really happened is that as the government pulled back from regulation, it slipped into just crass, mindless commercialism. And with the internet, everyone's worried about all of these uncontrolled bad ideas being spread around. But what's really happening is that the internet is going the way of radio in terms of becoming this highly gentrified corporate managed space. Right. Facebook, Google, Twitter, all these platforms now are basically the overseers of all of our online discourse and they're all advertising supported. They all uh, basically depend on kind of attracting the most views and page views and watch time possible with very little concern, if at all, about what they're actually um, serving. And I think this is also paired with the rise of kind of algorithmic advertising and programmatic advertising, which I think is a, a big part that hasn't really been talked about a lot where basically now people are advertisers are able to just buy specific viewers or or users based on these highly targeted demographics and it's just completely unbundled from any kind of publication or editorial um model and so you have a situation where yeah a Macedonian teenager if they're able to kind of attract the eyeballs of these certain demographic that somebody has bought on a you know auction site 500 views from a 50 year old white man as long <laughs> as they can get that guy they'll get the advertising dollars and and so it's become just completely frictionless detached from quality kind of pure arbitrage of attention which doesn't seem very healthy and i think we reached a kind of breaking point in this last election, but I'm, I'm actually heartened by the fact that there is now so much attention being paid to this and, and these kind of explicit calls now for these platforms to have some kind of civic responsibility and some kind of image outside of simply being a platform. And I think it's important going forward that that debate continues and that it doesn't, that it continues in a way that I think ultimately leads to a fulfilling of the democratic possibilities of the web, which is letting um, unheard voices be heard, letting, you know, ostracized political opinions be heard and 
basically, you know, Helen Nissenbaum put it in her article that, that the original vision of the web was to be an engine of social justice. And I think that if you go back and kind of really think about why people thought a distributed, you know, decentralized and at the beginning, non-commercial network, why that had so much potential, it wasn't simply about this kind of, you know, oh, if we can get the most amount of people together in this massive crowd, we'll have the best, you know, ideas rise to the top. It was really about basically boosting up new voices and and vulnerable voices and kind of opening up space for really exciting new possibilities. I've long had the opinion that Facebook should be expropriated and um, decommercialized. A lot of people tend to think that's sort of a, a crazy idea, but I don't, I can't think of any other way around the, the, the reality that we have currently, which mm-hmm. is that f- what really seems new about the internet to me, at least the way it's present organized at present, is that for the first time we have this virtual public sphere that's entirely under private ownership and the private ownership of one company. And that's something I truly can't think of a parallel to historically is the power that, that, that Facebook has right now. Yeah. I think one of the really troubling things is just the centralization of power because you do have this situation now where Facebook is so powerful and it, and it has such influence on so many different people that it's really hard to regulate it and not cut off millions of people with, you know, a wrong turn of the algorithm or something. It's just like the stakes are so high. There's just no um, room for error or for a more human approach to, you know, what is like a really messy, intimate thing that's going on on Facebook because it's like this behemoth. They have to um, treat all of this content and all of our lives as like a factory. And, and, you know, I've done a lot of reporting on how they moderate content and it's all outsourced. Um, most of it is outsourced to developing countries where, you know, people sit in front of monitors all day and, and click through thousands and thousands of, uh, images or, or, um, or tweets or status updates. And that is basically, you know, the, the regulators of our online discourse now are these outsourced uh, digital sweatshops. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't see how that can really lead to a good outcome in terms of like how we're going to talk about all these issues in the future and how, um, and I think that all of a lot of the discourse around fake news hinges on more moderation, tighter moderation. That's going to mean more, digital sweatshops, that's going to be more um, kind of arcane rules and systems that will just like, I don't know, I don't think it's going to lead to a more democratic media. I think it's going to lead to a more kind of Kafka-esque situation of like truth policing. I mean, I, I rarely agree with Mark Zuckerberg, but when he came out against the fake news um, kind of cries for cracking down on it and so we didn't want to be an arbiter of truth i do think he had a point there because i don't want facebook to do that either i think that one of the things we have to do is get away from the idea of of truth and fake versus real and really have you know fundamental conversations about like whose voices do we want on these platforms and whose do we not what kinds of you know communities what kinds of um movements what kinds of yeah people are are these platforms for and and I think you saw with the the outcry after Charlottesville where basically um, the Daily Stormer got banned from the internet I think that that was a watershed moment where um, you know all of these companies have kind of framed it as oh they were violating our terms of service or something but it really was I think one moment where the mask fell off and people were like, oh, this is about more than just truth and, and uh, fake versus real. It's about values and it's about, you know, what kind of society we're building. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely take it that expropriating Facebook sounds crazy, but I'm not sure how we look for alternatives to the sort of technocratic censorship approach that is so popular amongst liberal commentators right now. Um, I don't know how we provide an alternative to that that doesn't involve democratizing control of the internet. And I don't see how to do that with something like Facebook without some sort of either regulating it like a public utility, which I know weirdly enough is maybe an idea I share with Steve Bannon, <laughs> or expropriation because because Facebook's a natural monopoly. It's not um, sensitive to to the pressure market pressures of, of of competition because of the economy of scale that it operates on. There can't really be a competitor to Facebook. It only this sort of social media only works if everyone's on the same the same platform. I think some kind of increased regulation, some kind of increased democratic control over Facebook is definitely definitely necessary. I think people are going to be debating that for many years. Um, but yeah, I, I think the fundamental problem is that that it's just totally unaccountable um, to any kind of democratic pressures. And one point I make in the article is that we don't really have a unified front against Facebook or to say this is what we want you to do because um, because the the right wing has become so successful at propagating this narrative of liberal bias, whether or not it's true, whether or not, you know, um, maybe it would be good for these voices not to be on these platforms. Right. Uh, so so it just becomes this like crazy culture war that's now being moved onto Facebook. And I think one of the things that I'm really looking, looking, not looking forward to, but like going to be looking at in the future is just like, how do these executives who are incredibly powerful and influential now, uh, but are also trapped behind, between these like competing interests, how do they negotiate this? How does Mark Zuckerberg uh, negotiate both these increasing calls from liberals to crack down on fake news and hate speech and this incredibly powerful right-wing um, media that sees any effort at that as censoring them as a kind of globalist conspiracy even to, you know, I mean, it's amazing. Like Breitbart, basically, they see all of this fake news narrative from the left as being a way to censor critical criticism of immigration and refugees um, because Mark Zuckerberg is a globalist who wants to import a lot of workers for Facebook. And also he's buddies with Merkel. Um, and she was overheard on a hot mic one once during a, a conference asking him to crack down on hate speech against refugees. And he said, yes. And so this is, this is like a globalist conspiracy. And, and I, I just am very curious how it's going to play out because uh, Mark Zuckerberg is really just, you know, he's not beholden to anybody but his his shareholders. And, um, you know, you can't vote out the Facebook board. Um, and Peter Thiel is on the Facebook board. So and uh, Zuckerberg has been making his rounds as part of a 50 state tour. Um, but as you pointed out in your piece, the White House might be a step down for someone that controls the entire online public sphere effectively. <laughs> yeah, I, I found like the whole speculation that he was running for president kind of unbelievable. It was almost like too self-flattering to American democracy at this point, right? To be like, oh yeah, Mark Zuckerberg would really want to become president of the United States. Um, I, I think that I think that basically running Facebook has become more like running a country. And so he is now hiring people who have run political campaigns and he's posing for photos with babies. Um, he's putting out manifestos because uh, he, he has been very astute, I think, at understanding, even though he came out very tone deaf against the fake news crisis, basically using um, all of the Trump campaign and right-wing supporters lines, which I thought was kind of disturbing at the very beginning, he's kind of now realized, I think, that this is a, a negotiation and, and it's a campaign, basically, to constantly negotiate all these different 
political issues that are going on and that they're, they are now inculcated in. Well, Adrian Chen, thank you very much. Thank you. Adrian Chen is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week and trying to post them twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a review. They do help. And please go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. <laughs>